everyone back to another episode of Dardashe. Today I'm joined with the amazing and lovely Saad Al-Amiri, a author and an architect based in Palestine. Saad, it's so great to have you on. Thank you. Thank you so much, Salim. I look forward, really. Yeah, it's a pleasure. You know, I am an admirer of yours. I think you know by now. And, and the same goes to you. I'm a big admirer <laughs> of yours. <laughs> so I'm glad we were able to connect and have you on Dardashe. I wanted to ask you, Saad, you, you grew up, uh, I think, in, in, in different places and yeah. came, came back to Palestine as an adult. What was that experience like for you? Yeah, it's wonderful. Listen, I grew up, my father, my dad is from Jaffa and my mother is Damasin. And they became refugees in 1948 because we lost our house in Jaffa, but they were kicked out of their house also in Jerusalem. Uh, I was born after the Nakba, so I grew up in Jordan, and I always had to sort of imagine Palestine from a distance. As you know, most of the refugees who went to Jordan or Lebanon, Syria, or they were spread all over the world, they couldn't, back, couldn't come back to Palestine, no. and uh, especially to uh, what became Israel. Uh, so I had to sort of imagine Jaffa from a distance, Palestine from a distance. And as a kid, I always used to ask dad, is Palestine more beautiful than Lebanon? He would say, yes, <laughs> is it more beautiful than... I wanted it to be the most beautiful country. Yeah. Uh, so I grew up, uh, I studied, and I came in 81 okay. uh, to Palestine at the age of 30, actually. I was doing my PhD uh, research on Palestine, Palestinian village architecture. And I took a leave without pay from the University of Jordan. I was teaching architecture at the time there. And I took a leave for uh, uh, six months to do this uh, research. And the six months have become 40 years now in Palestine. Wow. Uh, but uh, um, what was it like to come back? First of all, uh, at that time, we came with permits. It was very difficult mm -hmm. to get a permit because I don't have any family actually here. So I was lucky to get a permit. The permit was in Hebrew. So I, it was very nerve-breaking because I, I had no idea what it said. And <laughs> I have been a little bit activist in America and in Jordan. So I wasn't sure whether it would permit me in to Palestine or into a prison. But anyway, I came in. Mm -hmm. And it was the first time, actually, for me, I arrived to Jerusalem. I didn't know anybody. And I remember my mother telling me, what, what, what would a woman, single woman, go to Palestine on her own? They would think that you are a spy. And <laughs> <laughs> so I arrive, I sleep in the YMCA. I rent a car, not knowing that the Israelis have yellow car and Palestinians have blue car. So I rented a yellow car. And I started going around to Palestinian villages and all the kids used to tell me, Shalom, Shalom. <laughs> and I was getting really upset because I, you know, I was wearing jeans with a camera and I looked a bit stranger for them. But also my Damascene accent was a bit strange for the Palestinians at that time. Anyway, um, coming back wasn't easy, I must say. Mm, I uh, Palestine was as beautiful. I was lucky to arrive here in 81 when Palestine was not so much uh, uh, disturbed, the landscape and the architecture as we see it today. Uh, so the beauty, my dad was right. It was very beautiful, but it wasn't easy actually to assimilate into the society. Mm. Uh, because, you know, as a Palestinian, I grew up in the Arab world and I was used to traveling, to moving, 
uh, to going to Beirut, Damascus, Cairo, and what have you. And the one thing that struck me most that I started teaching at Buzet University, I met a whole generation that have never been in the Arab world. Yeah. I have never met a Yemeni or a Sudani or an Iraqi. And that to me was a big stri striking thing that we have been actually cut from our cultural uh, basin, if you want. Yeah. And for me, that was the most difficult, the most difficult to see that the Palestinians could not, now it's worse, of course, but even at the time to see that the whole generation. Now, today we are talking about a whole generation doesn't know Jerusalem or doesn't know uh, Palestinian cities. But at that time, what the one thing that struck me really was uh, uh, this thing. The other thing is, you know, you love Palestine, you think the Palestinians are the best people. But people, Palestinians were very cautious because mm. of the occupation, because of the, uh, um, they were imposing curfews on us. It was very difficult at the beginning for me to be part of the society. Mm. It took some time, but being a professor at Buzet University, I think helped me. And yeah. eventually I, I think I, uh, I was no more a spy in Palestine. <laughs> you, you bring up you bring up a very important point that I, I always think about. Um, I always think about, you know, if and when we, we get our millions of Palestinians abroad, refugees get their right of return. Right. What would it be like for them to come back to their homeland and be mm. part of the society? And this is something you got to experience, essentially, you know, actualize yeah. your right of return. And, and I, I, I also connect with what you say. I'm part of the generation that never met other Arabs yeah. till I left Palestine when I was 18. Mm -hmm. And uh, because I grew up in the second and the father, I didn't get to even travel around the West Bank that much. Right. Uh, so I don't, I didn't know much of my own country till I grew up and became an adult. And, and now I get to explore it. But yeah, I, I want to go back to this idea of, of the right of return. And what do you think that would be like for people to come back? Listen, I, I think that um, it will be a very dramatic experience. Of course, it would be a great experience, a great uh, getting your rights back, because as you know, the right of return is a personal one. It's not a country mm -hmm. to country. As we know that the UN have uh, declared that Palestinians have rights to return and also have right to their property, and still is the case. Mm -hmm. Of course, the Israelis don't allow it. But I can, I can really uh, see it happening in the sense that people will, be, will have mixed feelings the way I did. On mm -hmm. the one hand, they will be very thrilled to be back, to have their rights, because the worst thing for a Palestinian is to live every day of your life feeling there is no justice, absolutely. Yeah. And this is the most difficult part to feel that you have lost a house, you have lost a land, you have lost a school, you have lost a hospital, you have lost, as I always say, Israel was took Palestine, furnished Palestine. It wasn't an empty land. It was a furnished mm. with schools, with uh, with farms, with uh, the best oranges in the world. So I think, on the one hand, I always say, Salem, that we and the Jews have very different histories. They were spread all over the world, and they came and gathered in uh, colonizing Palestine. At the same time, the indigenous Palestinians were forced out of their homes and became part of that bigger globe. Now, mm -hmm. there is, of course, there is a sadness and a great loss in this, but I always like to look at the uh, 
full cup, uh, how do you say the- uh, Glass full, uh, half full. Half full cup, yeah. that I think we will have a very rich, culturally very rich uh, society. Mm -hmm. I believe in cultural, uh, you are half German, I think, I am half Syrian and I'm always proud. I say, I wish every Palestinian was have something else <laughs> because it will expose us to other cultures, to yeah. other people. And I think this is the same point that we were talking, we are so isolated. So for me, having those people who speak French or English or Spanish coming back with knowledge is something very, very enriching. Mm -hmm. uh, so for me, I hope that this deprivation of 75 years or let's say 100 years will be um, substituted by the richness of this culture that we already see, by the way. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We see that culture without the right of return. We see how Palestinians in France, in Britain, in name it, in Italy, in America, are already part of the Palestinian scene. And I think it's a power because part of the Israeli power was that they came from different communities. They spoke those languages and they knew the system. Mm -hmm. While we were refugees, we hardly could speak the language. We were busy. Our parents were busy making a living. That's your grandfather, I would say, mm -hmm. which is my father. And then we were educated. And I am sure our kids are at a time where they feel liberated from this trauma and be able to sort of contribute. And we are seeing it now that the Palestinians are becoming culturally part of the film industry, part of mm -hmm. the music, part of the writers. We are mushrooming. And this we, we did not see before. That's true. Yeah. Yeah, I, I, I long for those days, I think, uh, for, for those influences and for, for, for people to get to experience Palestine in all its good and all its bad. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you, what brought you to architecture? Why did you become an architect? <laughs> you, want, you want the serious one or the joke? <laughs> <laughs> Both. Both. <laughs> uh, listen, I uh, discovered at an, uh, at an older age that I am dyslexic. And I don't know if you know yes. what dyslexia is. I do, yeah. You have difficulty reading. I don't have difficulty reading in Arabic. I only discovered when I started reading Latin or English for that matter, mm -hmm. that I was dyslexic. I had difficulty connecting the single word uh, letters together. And this only happened later in my life, I, dis I discovered. Yeah. So I always joke and also, I always loved nature. I still love nature. I am a gardener. I like walking and I love animals. I actually grew up with animals. My mother was an animal lover, so we had all sorts of animals. So I always say when I went to the American University of Beirut in Lebanon, I wanted to study agriculture. Okay. But having been dyslexic, I think I wrote architecture by mistake. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, that's the joke, but actually most of artists and architects, you will discover that they are, most people who are dyslexic tend to go to art and architecture. I see. But also I think the absence of Palestine played a great deal and also Damascus played a great deal because my mother was Syrian. I don't know, Salem, if you have been to Damascus, no. I doubt it very much. No. But Damascus is one of the most beautiful cities, and my last novel actually is called Damas My Damascus. Damascus left a great impact on me architecturally. You know, mm. the souk al-Hamadiyya, the different souks, the different light, the different material, the abundance of, you know, 
of silk and food and light and mosques and churches, what, name it, and palaces. Uh, so I always say really, really from a distance, I built small models to our house, how it looked in Jaffa. Meanwhile, I enjoyed my grandfather's house in Damascus, which was a very beautiful house. Mm. And I think this left an impact for me and that's why I think I became an architect. Amazing. And when you, in the early 90s, you, you founded Rewak, um, and what was the philosophy behind that? And, and yeah. how was that, I, you know, you, you, you said something that struck me earlier, you know, the landscape in Palestine obviously changed dramatically from when you first came in the 80s to Absolutely. now. And sometimes, you know, when you drive through the West Bank, it's sometimes, and the cities, you know, are quite tough to look at. Yep. So how does that all fit in, in, in kind of the way you see architecture okay. in Palestine? Actually, it did not start with a philosophy. It started with a number. Okay. 420. 420 were, was the number that my father always talked about. And these were the number of villages that the Israelis destroyed by bulldozer between 1948 and 1952, right after the establishment of the Israeli state, they wanted to erase any presence mm. of Arabs there, Palestinians. And my father's neighborhood in Jaffa called Al-Manshiye, which was one of mm -hmm. the biggest, biggest neighborhoods, which is the area between Tel Aviv and uh, Jaffa of today, where all the hotels are, has been demolished totally to build part of Tel Aviv on it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Now, the number 420 was obsessively in my mind all the time. How could it be that they demolish 420 villages? When I arrived in Palestine, of course, the first thing I wanted to do is to go and look for these 420 villages. To my biggest surprise, to find out that, for example, Canada Park was built on Amwas. Uh, many mm -hmm. of the parks, the Israelis claim that they, you know, they plant trees and actually they cover destroyed cities uh, or villages mostly. It became an obsession for me and I said, and that was 50% of what we had. We mm -hmm. had almost 900 villages in Palestine. So my mission was to protect the remaining 50% that we have. And when I came in 81, I was lucky because those were really beautiful. Now it's very mm -hmm. difficult to see them. We are still doing the work at Rewaq, but it had become, you know, small historic centers. But when I arrived, I have a beautiful archive. And anyway, the mission was to protect whatever was remaining. And mm -hmm. that was the idea of Rewaq. And that's why Rewaq works in villages more than towns. Uh, because it was the villages that were really destroyed in historic Palestine. Yeah, and for those, for the, for the listeners and the viewers who have never been to Palestine, how would you describe a quintessential Palestinian village or, or structures or, or architecture? Right, right, right. You know, I did my PhD on that subject, so I okay. can spend the whole day talking to you. <laughs> Let's try to sum it up in five minutes. Okay. Uh, you know, uh, the Palestinian society has uh, three communities. One is urban, and we mm -hmm. have almost 18 or 14 cities in Palestine, in historic Palestine. Uh, what happened with the creation of Israel, we actually lost our urban society, and people don't know that, because most of the cities that we lost were on the sea. 
like uh, Haifa, Akka, Ramla, Askalan, Ludarno, all of the cities. That's mm -hmm. number one. Number two, the heart of peasantry historically in Palestine was the West Bank, the mountains, yeah. the highlands. Mm -hmm. So the West Bank is the heart of the peasantry. And that's why I decided to do the work on uh, peasants. And the third community, which is suffering a lot today from the Israelis, is the Bedouin community. Yeah. The Bedouins have domain over big parts of Palestine. And it's not unlike we think that the Bedouins have no property. The Bedouins know their areas, domains exactly. If you and I don't recognize them, it doesn't mean that they don't exist. And that's what the Israelis are claiming all the time. Now, for the Palestinian uh, peasantry, I was really interested on how the peasants in Palestine organized their physical spaces reflecting their social and economic relationships. And what does that mean? It means that, for example, they were peasants, they jointly have the village, what we call Masha, mm -hmm. and they had a rotation system where they distributed the land between themselves and every five or six years they change. So if you have a land and I think it's better than mine, we exchange every time. So number one is they were based, agriculturally based. And second, there were more than one tribe or one clan, as we say, Hamula, that lived in the village. So when you look at the village, actually it's divided according to the social Hamula. Every extended family has its neighborhood. The same thing with land. They divided the land and the, and the space into families. The third division was gender. Even though, unlike what we, you and I think today, or this generation think, the peasant woman was the most liberated woman. The Bedouins and the peasants, by the way, were the most free and liberated women because they woke up in the morning, they did some housework, but then they went out to the field and worked with men, uh, specific job, but they collected, uh, they helped with the, so women really had a space outside, but at the same time, women had spaces inside. In other words, there were landmarks in the village which were only women. The naba, mm -hmm. the um, well, collecting mm -hmm. water, uh, also, the spaces within the courtyard are only women, while men have their own madafa or guest house. So there was a division in the village, but not in the fields, which is interesting. Mm -hmm. They always mixed out in the field. So what I'm trying to say that the peasants, as far as they were cons uh, considered peasants, had worked on the land, the village was inward looking. They did not need anything from outside until the British mandate came and started employing them as teachers and as um, uh, police men. They created jobs. And that's when the village st stopped being concentric and started being linear, going towards the city, going towards Jerusalem and the urban. So this happened in the 30s. And of course, uh, labor became the most, you know, it was more, um, um, people started leaving their lands mm -hmm. and it continued with Israel, of course, as we see it today, that people only do agriculture during the olive season. Yeah. Mm. Yeah, we lost that tradition, even in Jericho, which is a, you know, agricultural city and, and still yeah. the majority of 
people there don't don't work on farms, don't own farms. They end up going working working in settlements, sadly, because unfortunately, unfortunately, unfortunate. because we have been our economy has been colonized or have been subsidy to the Israelis. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And they contributed to that, by the way, by even in Gaza, Gaza was all olive uh, oranges. They cut the water, then they cut the trees, claiming it's uh, safety. And next thing we know that they give them uh, incentive to do roses, incentive to do strawberries and all towards the Israeli market. Mm, yeah, it's a, it's a whole, it's a whole subsystem of, of the apartheid and settler colonial regime that people are not fully aware of as well. Sadly, um, yes. slowly, slowly, they are becoming aware of slowly, that. slowly. Exactly. Yeah. I want to shift gears and because you're doing incredible work in the in the field of architecture, but also you're a brilliant writer. And I want to know how does someone who's dyslexic become a writer? <laughs> <laughs> Listen, Salim, I always say thanks to my mother-in-law and Sharon, you know, because that was my first book, Sharon and my mother-in-law. And really, I became a writer by pure accident at the age of 50. So I want to encourage people, don't... Uh, the last thing I thought I will ever be is a writer, and I mean it. Mm. But as you will discover soon, I am a hakawati. I love telling stories and I love talking. But I never made the connection that you know, if you have a story, you can become a writer. Actually, I always thought that writing is about language. Mm. But uh, if you have a good language, but you don't have a story, you cannot become a writer. And the story is called a story <laughs> in Arabic, al-qissa, al-riwaya. So I never made that connection. And thanks to my mother-in-law, who was 91 years old, uh, living on her own during uh, 2001, 2002, when the Israelis reoccupied Ramallah. And I was forced uh, to bring her to live with me in the same house. And I, as I always repeat this joke every other day that thanks, uh, you know, I ended up with two occupations, one inside the house <laughs> by my mother-in-law and another by the Israelis outside the house. Uh, so to, it was a therapeutic writing every night when my mother-in-law went to, she was 91 and a very organized woman. Okay. And, you know, we were put under curfew for 44 days. Mm. And you lose, uh, as we know now with COVID, we lose the sense of time. Anyway, whenever she went to bed, I sat and wrote a story, either about her or about Sharon. <laughs> and I sent these to friends as emails. And uh, crazy Italians, they took the book. And uh, all of a sudden, I, be, I find myself a successful writer. The book was translated into 10, 20 languages and what have you. So. Here I am. I am on my seventh book now. And, and by the way, the last book was about Damascus and the, new, the book will appear in two months is about Jaffa. Wow. Why did you, I, I mean, I know your connection to Damascus, but why have you chosen to write about it now? Oh, yeah. Well, as I said before, Damascus had, I always said that thanks to Damascus that I am sort of normal. Otherwise, I will mm -hmm. be totally, totally Palestinian and uh, complicated. <laughs> so <laughs> uh, really, Damascus gave me a lot, a lot, a lot as a, as a kid. It was uh, the place where I had, uh, you know, a great time, lots of love. And it was in 2011. Uh, when the war, uh, the civil war in uh, uh, the revolution started in uh, Syria, 
And it was very heartbreaking to see Aleppo and see Syria being destroyed the way it was. I felt, oh my God, I'm becoming refugee from both sides. Mm-hmm. But also, Salem, I do spend some time in Italy, and I do. I, at that time, I was spending time in New York, and I saw how the Europeans, some, not all, because some of them are really good, uh, some, the way they treat refugees, mm-hmm. they, especially mm-hmm. the Syrian refugees, as if these people have no culture, no music, no food, nothing. So for me, it was important to write a book describing the beauty it was about beauty. It mm-hmm. was about music, about celebration, about the family coming together on a Friday with all the family uh, stories, mm-hmm. of course. Mm-hmm. So for me, it was a homage for my mother and also for the city where I grew up, but it was also a homage for the refugees, which is one of the biggest problems that we are living today in the world in addition to yeah. the environment. Amazing. That's why I wrote Damascus. That's very inspiring, Saad. Um, I want to thank you. I could genuinely listen, sit and listen to you all day. You are actually, <laughs> and you, you regret it, I was, I was captivated the entire time. But before I let you go, I want to uh, ask you, where can people get your books? Okay, if you are in America, uh, the Damascus has just been published by Interlink. If you go to Amazon and put my name, uh, Saad Amiri, A-M-I-R-Y, you will find all the books. You can order them. If you happen to be in Palestine, uh, in Arabic, you can find them mostly in Jerusalem, uh, at the American colony, or Maktab al-Almiyah, Ahmad Mahmoud al-Muna. Amazing. Uh, you can find Dimashki and all the other books. I encourage everyone to, to go out and, and get Saad's book, books and, and be fully entertained and educated and enlightened. Saad, it was so, so lovely to have you. Thank you. Thank, thank you. you. Keep up the good work yourself. Thank you. Thank you so okay. much. Thank Bye. you. Thank you.